to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Tonight we come to the end of our tour through the wonderful New Testament book of James, a letter written by James, the brother of Jesus. We're up to the final paragraph of the letter, James 5, verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. What James himself has been doing throughout this letter, he now urges us to do for one another. We are to seek out wayward brothers and sisters and turn them back to the truth. The truth referred to here in verse 19 isn't so much a doctrinal truth, It's the word of truth or the perfect law that gives freedom that James has referred to already in the letter. In other words, it's the truth of the teachings of and about Jesus himself. The wandering mentioned here then is a departure from the lifestyle demanded of the follower of Jesus. The whole letter of James has been calling on believers to conform to this truth of Jesus, which is why much of the letter alludes to things Jesus himself taught. Let me summarise, since this is the last reflection on the book of James, what the letter has said about the truth we're all being called back to here in the final paragraph. After a tantalising foretaste of the themes of the whole letter in chapter 1, James then pleads us in the first part of chapter 2 not to favour the rich as the world so often does, but instead to demonstrate the reality of our faith second half of chapter 2, through works of compassion toward the poor. The same compassion has to govern the tongue as well, says James in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Would-be teachers are to think twice about assuming such a role, and the rest of us are to speak to our neighbours as fellow bearers of the divine likeness. More than that, we're all to work for peace in our relationships, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, practicing what James calls deeds done in the humility that comes from true wisdom. This wisdom, rightly grasped, will put an end to the harmful pursuit of wealth and pleasure. That's chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And then in chapter 4, verses 4 to 10, James says that this wisdom will demand our unqualified submission to the God who opposes the proud and lifts up the humble, the God of infinite grace. This leaves us without a basis, James says in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, for slandering and judging one another. The upwardly mobile, chapter 4, 13 to 17, will keep their aspirations in check, while the faithful oppressed, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, will wait patiently for the overthrow of tyranny at the coming of the Lord. The troubled will pray, chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. And the joyful will sing, and the sick will find healing and forgiveness as we listen to and intercede for one another. That is the truth the letter of James has been calling readers back to. Now in this final paragraph, though, James urges us to take up the same task ourselves and seek to win back those who have strayed from this truth. The wayward person is described here in chapter 5 verse 20 as a sinner. 
Now, when used of a believer, as it is here and back in chapter 4, verse 8, the word sinner implies a gross refusal to submit to God's ways. It's a reference to the person who claims to have faith but has no deeds. Such a person is in danger of spiritual death, says James. So James pleads faithful Christians to save their sinful brothers and sisters from this terrible fate. We are to do what we can by word and example and prayer to convince our wayward Christian friends to return to the path of Jesus. Doing this, says James, will cover over the multitude of their sins. This is a reference to God's willingness to overlook the faults of the repentant sinner. Let me repeat something that I've said often throughout this series. For all the challenges James puts to his readers, mercy is never far away from his mind or pen. This is not a moralistic letter. It's a letter of rebuke, yes, but it's also a letter of restoration and grace. What James asks of his readers in this final paragraph goes completely against our individualistic modern culture. We talk about faith as a private affair. We say, who am I to judge another? Now, of course, we should never be judgmental and hypocritical toward others. But the Christian community should be a place of mutual accountability. We're meant to be a family. And part of being a family is helping each other stay on track. Not only through prayer and example, but also through humble confrontation and criticism. Consider this example. Carl and Sam have known each other since they were kids. They grew up in the same area. They shared some of life's early milestones through primary school and were part of the same church community. At uni, Carl and Sam were both involved in the Christian group on campus. By that stage, Sam was highly regarded as a speaker and a leader of Christian camps. As they moved on to their careers... Carl and Sam slipped out of contact. Carl's career took him overseas. But after 10 years away, he returned, married and ready to resettle in his home country. To their great surprise, Sam and Carl found themselves working for the same firm. Sam had a family too by this stage, and the two old friends couldn't wait to get their clans together over a barbecue and dinner parties and the like. But when they did get together... Carl couldn't help noticing the lack of reference in Sam's speech to anything to do with church or matters of faith. He seemed different somehow, less vibrant, a bit closed. It was obvious that the flames of spiritual energy he once had were barely flickering, if not extinguished. After some fumbling attempts to broach the subject, Carl decided to drop what was fast becoming a very awkward issue. But as time wore on, Carl felt really uneasy. He decided that he had to say something. With much prayer and not a little trepidation, he called Sam and asked to meet him for coffee. He knew this was going to be a very hard conversation. Perhaps the friendship wouldn't survive. But Carl felt he couldn't pretend it didn't matter. Well, Carl's fear was not without foundation. That initial conversation was really awkward. Sam was evasive, embarrassed and defensive. For several weeks, he avoided further contact. 
But Carl persisted with the friendship. He wanted Sam to know that the relationship wasn't contingent on him coming back to God. He just wanted him to know that he longed for him to do so. Slowly, conversations about Christian things became a little easier each time they met. It turned out that Sam's youthful role in the church had become a hurtful and confusing time for him, and he hadn't been able to talk with anyone for years about it. They were both now freely discussing God, the church, and Jesus. Carl thought he noticed Sam beginning to open up, making small steps back to the truth. Well, that is the sort of thing James is urging here at the end of the letter. The impact of the letter of James doesn't end with the close of the book. By ending the letter the way he does, urging the faithful to win back the wayward, James lifts himself out of the picture and hands the work of the letter over to his hearers. Now they, that's us, must seek to restore family members back to Jesus' royal law of love. The real work of the book of James begins right now. Let's pray. Merciful God, teach me all that you want me to know. Make me the person you want me to be. Give me the love and courage to bring wanderers back to the truth. Above all, thank you for the mercy you have shown in Jesus that makes all this possible. In his name I pray. Amen. Hope 103.2 Thanks for listening.